This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. On the campaign trail this week, the Liberals focused on their plan for a made-in-Ontario pension, while the Tories were talking jobs and smaller government, and the NDP unveiled its platform. What is resonating with voters? We'll check in with our Zoomer election panel as we head into the final two weeks of the race. This is the Lucite TV. It was made for the 1939 World's Fair by RCA. Plus, this Thursday, there was a special celebration here at the Zoomerplex. It was the relaunch of the MZTV Museum of Television. The museum is a trip down memory lane for Zoomers. Many of the televisions on display were once in their own childhood living rooms. Decades later, they've become valuable collectibles. We'll bring you more later on. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The healthiest American state for seniors is Minnesota, at least according to a study by the not-for-profit United Health Foundation. It's ranked the country's healthiest states for those 65 and older based on criteria including physical activity, availability of home health care, food security, dental care, prescription drug coverage, and the quality of nursing homes. It's the second year in a row Minnesota has come out on top. It's followed by Hawaii, New Hampshire, Vermont, and Massachusetts. As for the bottom of the list, Mississippi took the last spot. Providing care for a frail spouse is more stressful than caring for parents or in-laws. An Associated Press, NORC, Center for Public Affairs Research poll, found Americans 40 and over count on family to care for them as they get older. But neither the graying population nor their loved ones are doing much planning for long-term care. The poll shows support for policy changes to help, including tax breaks for long-term care and more community services. On Monday, Sir Nicholas Winton was presented with a cake bearing 105 candles at the Czech Embassy in London. His age alone would have set him apart as an exceptional individual, but he has a far greater achievement. He's the man who saved 669 Jewish children from the Holocaust, and this week he celebrated his birthday with news that he is to receive the Czech Republic's highest honor. Winton will be awarded the Order of the White Lion for giving the greatest possible gift, the chance to live and to be free. In 1939, he orchestrated the transportation of the children from Nazi-occupied Czechoslovakia to Britain, ultimately saving them from concentration camps. Nikki's children, as they are called, now have some 6,000 descendants. When do you think old age begins? Later than it used to, at least according to a new survey of 2,000 Britons. The average answer in this poll was 80, 
about 12 years later than it would have been a generation ago. Those behind the study say the change in attitude is due in large part to delayed retirement, more active lifestyles, not to mention familiarity with successful octogenarians like Regis Philbin and Angela Lansbury. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. On the campaign trail this week, new polls suggest the Ontario election is turning into a tight race with all three parties within seven points of each other. The question is, what is driving these votes? Will a desire for change trump the issues and policies? And is the main talking point still PC leader Tim Hudak's promise to create a million jobs while cutting 100,000 from the broader public sector? I'm here with our Zoomer election panel. Susan Eng, CARP's VP of Advocacy, Dale Goldhawk, host of Goldhawk Fights Back, and John Wright, senior VP of Ipsos Global. On our poll we released on Friday, we actually tested um, the credibility of the million jobs idea, and it it certainly doesn't have a lot of credibility. Only one-third, in fact, think it's, you know, a a doable thing. We also found that 39% uh, support the reduction, however you want to put it, of the civil service across the province. And we found that essentially there is no advantage on the economic fall for the conservatives. So you sort of say, well, then what really is driving this? And we continue to find that 73% of Ontarians want change. It's it's a, a bit of a weird situation where what we're finding is the popular vote has narrowed a little bit, where the the, the Conservatives have gone down, a lot of it in Toronto, and the NDP have come up a little bit. But the, the Liberal vote is very, very flat. So I would say at this stage, even though people may not you know, embrace what Tim Hudak is saying, the, the issue for them is change, and the two parties who are moving the most are agents of change and not the Liberals. Okay, Susan, what are you finding? Yeah, it's interesting that the NDP in particular have really picked up on the conservative agenda this this time around with the release of their platform. It's sort of like everything that was in the Liberal budget, plus a few that might have come out of a conservative budget, and the NDP is AWOL in terms of its usual ideological positioning. Mm-hmm. So what's happening here? They're just saying, pick me. Like, I, these are all good ideas. We all agree with them, but pick me. And that's what it's become. And I, I'm really sort of disappointed in that because really elections have to be about issues rather than necessarily saying, well, I'm the person to get these things done. And perhaps that's where we're stuck. That's why we're not getting much on the issues. Now, uh, speaking of the NDP, uh, we had some very prominent New Democrats coming out and slamming Andrea Horvath for voting down this budget because it had a lot of things that the NDP likes. Uh, John, do you see uh, a a situation where the NDP could get squeezed out because of something like that? I look at it uh, slightly differently from a positioning point of view, and that is that Andrea Horwath and the NDP are being pushed into the middle. I mean, the Liberals have become, in fact, I think strategically, they decided that they were going to own the left. So mm. there's nowhere on the left for the NDP to go except to become, like, communists. I mean, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, we can't have that. There's nowhere else to go over there. So they've actually kind of been in the middle, forced into the middle. And I think that's what's caused the issue here, that... The question is really, what, who has swallowed the identity of what the normal NDP would look after? And I think you're looking at Kathleen Wynne, Paul Martin kind of leadership. 
I want to talk a bit about the ground war that's going on because I hear this through the debates that I'm moderating because the lines they bring into the studio are the same lines they're knocking on doors and delivering. And when we're talking about the 100,000 jobs lost and the million gained, the, the candidates out there are having a very difficult time even explaining exactly what's going on. And in all cases, I have found that the opponents on both sides are able to kind of take it apart fairly easily, and we're left with the impression that the Tory candidates are really having a tough time selling that themselves. There's this whole fear thing. People are trying to scare people about the conservative agenda if they are the most likely agent of change. What is the likelihood that that is working? When I talk to people on on my radio show here at Zoomer Radio, you hear an awful lot of that fear and then followed by dismissal. I'll vote for anybody. I don't know who, but I know I'm not going to vote for, uh, for Tim Hudak. So the scare factor is there. What I'm saying is that if at the end of the day, the, the thing is, I hear a lot of people saying, I can't vote for these liberals again. Um, the gas plants, we have to throw them out. So yeah. I'm saying the two opposing things seem to be that and and Well, the that's fi- what I said. That's the, the horse coming up on the outside is that is that boondoggle or whatever you want to call it of the $1.1 billion a plant removal plan that the Liberals had. And that seems to be gaining strength. While people are reeling about the job thing, how many jobs are going away, how many jobs are coming down the track, people are starting to remember that billion dollars. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's uh, to some extent true. But, you know, if you were to stand up right in my face and ask me, well, what do you think about a billion dollars being wasted? Of course, I'm going to jump up and say the responsible thing and say, I really think that's terrible. But in my own heart of hearts, I'm thinking, how has that really affected my life? Did somebody take away a bus line because of that money? Did I lose a job because of that? Now, what what should we expect going into next week? Susan? I think that they're they're going to do more of the same, and maybe out of the liberal platform on announcement, there'll be more discussion of the specifics involved and what's at risk and what you don't get if you don't vote them in. I'm still an idealist. I still think elections about campaigns and about uh, issues. But if it's just personality, then we just may as well look at the poll numbers as to who makes the best premier. I don't, I don't think Zoomer voters are looking just at the personality. In some cases, you could argue there isn't much personality to find. But, uh, <laughs> but, but the point is I hear more and more, and I heard it today, people saying, you know, I really do not know who to vote for. They, they, some of them saying, I was certain a week or so ago. Now I'm really starting to wonder. I wonder if there's some kind of second thought process that goes on here in certain campaigns, John. I think the next week is going to be crucial uh, with the advertising and the touring. I, you know, I would want to watch where the buses go and where the candidates are. But I think the next thing is that they're going to start getting ready for this debate that's coming up and to see whether it is a turning point in the final days of the campaign. So, again, we don't have a lot of time, but I, I'm with Susan on this. I don't, I don't feel that there's a, a ballot question on the substance. Rather, it's more about you know, the the environment of change. And I wonder whether or not we're going to see some coalescence around some kind of issue in the next couple of weeks. Okay, well, if we have some consensus, that's a good note to wrap it up. That's as good as it gets. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Until next week, thank you all. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
We'll be keeping you up to date with our weekly election panels until the weekend after the vote. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. And it was an exciting week here at the Zoomerplex. The MZTV Museum of Television was officially relaunched. We'll learn more about the historic collection after the break. You're listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. The Phantom Teleceiver, the Philco Holiday, it's like a found poem in the names themselves. The penthouse, the Philco princess, the predictor. A few lines of poetry and a ribbon cutting marked the reopening of the MZTV Museum of Television and Archive in its new location here at the Zoomerplex in Toronto's Liberty Village. It's the world's most extensive collection of televisions from the 1920s to the 1970s, collected by Moses Neimer and donated to the Cinémathèque Québécoise. And there are fewer pre-World War II TVs left in the world than Stradivarius violins. My name is Carolyn Stewart, and I am the curator of the MZTV Museum of Television. Uh, on display, we probably have about 175 to 200 TVs. In the collection as a whole, there are probably about 400. This is the Lucite TV. It was made for the 1939 World's Fair by RCA. One day when I was so struck by the beauty of the Philco Predicta and decided I might want to have one, what got me thinking about it was that I had difficulty finding one. And that didn't make much sense because by that time TV was so ubiquitous, I thought, Jesus, be no problem, I'll go get one of my own. And because I found it hard to get one of my own, in fact, it took me close to a year to find a Philco Predicta, I realized that people were not treating these things like the family silverware, they were treating them like the toaster. As soon as a new one came out, the old one got thrown away. And so, no, I don't think most people were conscious that this was going to become, as rapidly as it has, a historic device because what's happened is that the set has disappeared. We're left with the screen. It's uh, quite an innovation, as Moses Zeinmer always does, you know. He had collected all those uh, television, hundreds of TV sets from the very first days of television. And, uh, well, I mean, this needs a museum, you know. The Cinematheque is a museum of moving images. We do collect television, but we are the only content so far. Uh, that means uh, seven years ago. And uh, he came to us and said, uh, I'd like you to have my collection of television set so they can be exhibited. So we said, yes, why not? And we started working on that together. And we, we saw that we couldn't uh, have the space at the Cinematheque in Montreal to exhibit everything he had, you know, 383. Uh, uh, receivers, just as receivers, because we have memorabilia and all things like that. So, anyhow, he said, okay, I'll have a part of it in Toronto and part of it in Montreal. So we have a permanent exhibition in Montreal and a permanent exhibition in Toronto, but both in the name of the Cinematheque, because he gave us the collection. The Cinematheque, for me, is that continuity. It's a subject, you know, that we deal with here in Zoomer Media in general, which is you get older and at some point you stop. You want to stay young as long as you can and die young at a very old age, but sooner or later you die. 
And, and so the Cinematheque's an institution that is obviously going to survive. And so they were part of my thought about how I would get my collection to survive. You can still get in to see the collection today. The MZTV Museum will be open until 5 p.m. as part of Doors Open Toronto. And it will open to the public regularly starting on July the 2nd. I'm Libby Snymer and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. One of the greatest songwriters of the Zoomer generation is celebrating his 73rd birthday. In just a moment, we'll return with Bob Dylan. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your International Arts Datebook tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. In Chicago, see how robots are changing the way people live and work as part of a new interactive exhibit at the Museum of Science and Industry. To London, England, where Dirty Rotten Scoundrels is impressing audiences, it stars Robert Lindsay and Samantha Bond, who plays a character named Muriel Eubanks. She's a very wealthy divorcee who's gone to the south of France in search of love, and momentarily she believes she might have found it. But, but he's a con I'm, man. Because I'm, I'm playing a prince, so I, I, you know, I try and convince everyone that I'm, I'm royalty. It's at the Savoy Theatre. And in Paris, relive the glory days of the City of Lights when the Eiffel Tower first opened, along with several railway stations and the first line of the Metro subway. Paris 1900 is at the Musée du Petit Palais. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Book. This weekend, we're celebrating the 73rd birthday of one of the world's greatest songwriters, Bob Dylan. He was born Robert Allen Zimmerman on May 24, 1941. Dylan rose to fame in the 1960s folk music scene in New York City's Greenwich Village. During the first half of the 60s, he stuck to mostly traditional folk and blues, performing on an acoustic guitar. In 1965, he rocked the folk scene when he plugged in an electric guitar at the Newport Folk Festival. The audience reacted with a mixture of cheers and boos, and he left the stage after only three songs. He lost some of his folk purist fans, but gained plenty of new fans who were eager for more of the edgy electric sound 1960s musicians were exploring. Shortly after the festival, his milestone album, Highway 61 Revisited, was released. It was a hit with both fans and critics, and to this day remains one of his most revered albums. Right now, we'll hear some of the title track from that album. Here is Bob Dylan with Highway 61 Revisited. Oh, God said to Abraham, kill me a son. Abe said, man, you must be putting me on. God said, no. Abe said, what? God said, you can do what you want, Abe, but uh, next time you see me coming, you better run. Well, Abe said, where do you want this killing done? God said, hold on Highway 61. Well, Georgia Sam, he had a bloody nose. Well, fatty partner, they wouldn't give him no clothes. They asked poor Howard, where can I go? Howard said, there's only one place I know. Sam said, tell me quick, man, I got to run. Well, Abe said, 
That was Bob Dylan with Highway 61 Revisited. The legendary songwriter and singer celebrated his 73rd birthday this weekend. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week for All the Sex I've Ever Had. Not me, of course. It's a preview of what's sure to be a highlight of this year's Luminato Festival performance piece with senior citizens from around the world talking about their sex lives. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. Produced by Paul Thomas. Program director, John Vandrian. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.